a spectre is haunting reformism. The spectre? Of revolution. Welcome to the Red Canon. I'm Vinnie McLean. This is a podcast that provides audiobooks of classic leftist literature. Today I'm beginning Social Reform or Revolution by Rosa Luxemburg. Red Canon is but a small part of Socialism is Good Actually, a project designed to spread materials for political education to a wide audience. There are a variety of ways to contribute. Most obviously, we have a Patreon available at patreon.com slash socialismisgood. There are PDFs of zines and mini-comics available at socialismisgood.com, or you can leave a nice review in Apple Podcast. That helps us turn the capitalist algorithm against its fruit-flavored masters and toward the immortal science of Marxism-Leninism. Rosa Luxemburg was a Marxist economist in the early 20th century. She was instrumental in the German Revolution after the Great War, but ultimately a victim of the German Social Democratic Party's degeneration into reformism in the wake of their victory and the alliance they forged with the Freikorps, paramilitaries formed out of World War I veterans. Given what happened in Germany afterward, this should serve as a massive warning to future left-wing movements. Reform or revolution has been one of the longest sustained debates among the left, going back into time immemorial. Time has proven that reforms can happen, the conditions of the working class can be ameliorated, but those reforms can be rolled back. The problem, from the other side, is that revolutions can fail, or sometimes they can be turned back too. The fight against capitalism is a process that continues on. It's a marathon, not a sprint. There's an extremely narrow view of revolution among a certain set of reform-minded socialists. They believe revolutionary socialists to be blankeast insurrectionaries, seeking only violence and power. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you listen to my little sub-episode in the middle of January, Lenin himself was against, quote, blowing up bridges. In point of fact, Lenin's politics were heavily informed by the futility of revolutionary terrorism. But back to Rosa. Social reform and revolution ended up changing the direction of the German Social Democratic Party, putting it on a path it blazed until the Great War, which she greatly prefigured in this work. If you want to know more about Rosa Luxemburg, there's an absolute banger of a graphic novel about her, Red Rosa by Kate Evans. I highly recommend it. It's the best political education comic I've ever read. That gives enough context for what you're about to listen to. Without further ado, Social Reform or Revolution by Rosa Luxemburg. Part 1. Chapter 1. The Opportunist Method. It is true that theories are only the images of the phenomenon of the exterior world in the human consciousness. It must be added, concerning Edward Bernstein's system, that theories are sometimes inverted images. Think of a theory of instituting socialism by means of social reforms in the face of the complete stagnation of the reform movement in Germany. Think of a theory of trade union control. Consider the theory of winning a majority in Parliament after the revision of the Constitution of Saxony and in view of the most recent attempts against universal suffrage. However, the pivotal point of Bernstein's system is not located in the conception of the practical tasks of social democracy. It is found in his stand on the course of the objective development of capitalist society, which, in turn, is closely bound to his conception of the potential tasks of social democracy. According to Bernstein, a great decline of capitalism seems to be increasingly improbable because, on the one hand, capitalism shows a greater capacity of adaptation, and, on the other hand, capitalist production becomes more and more varied. The capacity of capitalism to adapt itself, says Bernstein, is manifested first in the disappearance of the general crises resulting from the development of the credit system, employers' organizations, wider means of communication, and informational services. It shows itself, secondly, in the tenacity of the middle classes, which hails from the growing differentiation of the branches of production and the elevation of vast layers of the proletariat to the layer of the middle class. It is in furthermore proved, argues Bernstein, by the amelioration of the economic and political situation of the proletariat as a result of its trade union activity. From this theoretic stand, it has derived the following general conclusion about the practical work of the social democracy. The latter must not direct its daily activity toward the conquest of political power, but toward the betterment of the condition of the working class within the existing social order. It must not expect to institute socialism as a result of political and social crisis, but should build socialism by means of progressive extension of social control and the gradual application of the principle of cooperation. Bernstein himself sees nothing new in these theories. On the contrary, he believes them to be in agreement with certain declarations of Marx and Engels. Nevertheless, it seems to us that it is difficult to deny that they are in formal contradiction with the conceptions of scientific socialism. If Bernstein's revisionism merely consisted in affirming that the march of capitalist development is slower than we thought, before he would merely be presenting an argument for adjourning the conquest of power by the proletariat, on which everybody agreed up to now, 
Its only consequence would be a slowing up of the pace of the struggle. But that is not the case. What Bernstein questions is not the rapidity of the development of capitalist society, but the march of the development itself and, consequently, the very possibility of a change to socialism. Socialist theory up to now declared that the point of departure for a transition to socialism would be a general and catastrophic crisis. We must distinguish in this outlook two things, the fundamental idea and its exterior form. The fundamental idea consists of the affirmation that capitalism, as a result of its own inner contradictions, moves toward a point it will become unbalanced, when it will simply become impossible. There were good reasons for conceiving that juncture in the form of a catastrophic general commercial crisis, but that is of secondary importance when the fundamental idea is considered. The scientific basis of socialism rests, as it is well known, on three principles of capitalist development. First, on the growing anarchy of capitalist economy, leading inevitably to its ruin. Second, on the progressive socialization of the process of production, which creates the germs of the future social order. And third, on the increased organization and consciousness of the proletarian class, which constitutes the active factor in the coming revolution. Bernstein pulls away from the first of the three fundamental supports of scientific socialism. He says that capitalist development does not lead to a general economic collapse. He does not merely reject a certain form of the collapse, he rejects the very possibility of collapse. He says textually, one should claim that by collapse of the present society, it is meant something else than the general commercial crisis, worse than all others. It is a complete collapse of the capitalist system brought about as a result of its own contradictions. And to this he replies, with the growing development of society, a complete and almost general collapse of the present system of production becomes more and more improbable because capitalist development increases on the one hand the capacity of adaptation, on the other, that is at the same time, the differentiation of industry. New Times, 1897-98, volume 18, page 555. But the question arises, why and how, in that case, can we attain the full goal? According to scientific socialism, the historic necessity of the socialist revolution manifests itself above all in the growing anarchy of capitalism, which drives the system into an impasse. But if one admits with Bernstein that capitalist development does not move in the direction of its own ruin, then socialism ceases to be objectively necessary. There remains the other two mainstays of the scientific explanation of socialism, which are also said to be consequences of capitalism itself the socialization of the process of production, and the growing consciousness of the proletariat. It is these two matters that Bernstein has in mind when he says, the suppression of the theory of collapse does not in any way deprive socialist doctrine of the power of persuasion. For, examined closely, what are all factors enumerated by us that make for the suppression or the modification of the former crises? Nothing else, in fact, than the conditions, or even in party the germs, of the socialization of production and exchange. Very little reflection is needed to understand that here, too, we face a false conclusion. Where lies the importance of all the phenomena that are said by Bernstein to be the means of capitalist adaptation? Cartels, the credit system, the development of the means of communication, the amelioration of the situation of the working class, etc. Obviously, in that they suppress, or at least attenuate, the internal contradictions of capitalist economy and stop the development or the aggravation of the contradictions. Thus, the suppression of crises can only mean the suppression of the antagonism between production and exchange on the capitalist base. The amelioration of the situation of the working class on the penetration of certain fractions of the class into middle layers can only mean the attenuation of the antagonism between capital and labor. But if the mentioned factors suppress the capitalist contradictions and consequently save the system from ruin, if they enable capitalism to maintain itself, that is why Bernstein calls them the means of adaptation. How can cartels, the credit system, trade unions, etc., be at the same time the conditions and even in part the germs of socialism? Obviously, only in the sense that they express most clearly the social character of production. By presenting it in its capitalist form, the same factors render superfluous inversely, in the same measure, the transformation of the socialized production into socialist production. That is why they can be the germs of the conditions of a socialist order only in a theoretic sense and not in a historic sense. They are phenomena which, in the light of our conception of socialism, we know to be related to socialism, but which, in fact, not only do not lead to a socialist revolution, but render it, on the contrary, superfluous. There remains one force making for socialism, the class consciousness of the proletariat. But it, too, 
is in the given case no the simple intellectual reflection of the growing contradictions of capitalism and its approaching decline. It is now no more than an ideal whose force of persuasion rests only on the perfection attributed to it. We have here, in brief, the explanation of the socialist program by means of pure reason. We have here, to use simpler language, an idealist explanation of socialism. The objective necessity of socialism, the explanation of socialism as the result of the material development of society, falls to the ground. Revisionist theory thus places itself in a dilemma. Either the socialist transformation is, as was admitted up to now, the consequences of the internal contradictions of capitalism, and with the growth of capitalism will develop its inner contradictions, resulting invariably at some point in its collapse. In that case, the means of adaptation are ineffective and the theory of collapse is correct, or the means of adaptation will really stop the collapse of the capitalist system and thereby enable capitalism to maintain itself by suppressing its own contradictions. In that case, socialism ceases to be a historic necessity. It then becomes anything you want to call it. It can no longer be the result of the material development of society. The dilemma leads to another. Either revisionism is correct in its position on the course of the capitalist development, and therefore the socialist transformation of society is only a utopia, or socialism is not a utopia, and the theory of the means of adaptation is false. There is the question in a nutshell. Chapter 2. The Adaptation of Capital According to Bernstein, the credit system, the perfected means of communication, and the new capitalist combines are the important factors that forward the adaptation of the capitalist economy. Credit has diverse applications in capitalism. Its two most important functions are to extend production and to facilitate exchange. When the inner tendency of capitalist production to extend boundlessly strikes against the restricted dimensions of private property, credit appears as a means of surmounting these limits in a particular capitalist manner. Credit through shareholding combines in one magnitude of capital a large number of individual capitals. It makes available to each capitalist the use of other capitalists' money in the form of industrial credit. As commercial credit, it accelerates the exchange of commodities and therefore the return of capital into production and thus aids the entire cycle of the process of production. The manner in which these two principal functions of capital influence the formation of crises is quite obvious. If it is true that crises appear as a result of the contradiction existing between the capacity of extension, the tendency of production to increase, and the restricted consumption capacity of the market, credit is precisely in the view of what was stated above, the specific means that makes the contradiction break out as often as possible. To begin with, it increases disproportionately the capacity of the extension of production and thus constitutes an inner motive force that is constantly pushing production to exceed the limits of the market. But credit strikes from two sides. After having, as the factor of the process of production, provoked overproduction, credit, as a factor of exchange, destroys during the crisis the very productive forces it itself has created. At the first symptoms of the crisis, credit melts away. It abandons exchange where it would still be found indispensable and appearing instead ineffective and useless. There, where some exchange still continues, it reduces to a minimum the consumption capacity of the market. Besides having these two principal results, credit also influences the formation of crises in the following ways. It constitutes the technical means of making available to an entrepreneur the capital of other owners. It stipulates at the same time the bold and unscrupulous utilization of the property of others. That is, it leads to speculation. Credit not only aggravates the crisis in its capacity as a dissembled means of exchange, it also helps to bring and extend the crisis by transforming all the exchange, an extremely complex and artificial mechanism that, having a minimum of metallic money as a real base, is easily disarranged at the slightest occasion. We see that credit, instead of being an instrument for the suppression or the attenuation of crises, is on the contrary, a particularly mighty instrument for the formation of crises. It cannot be anything else. Credit eliminates the remaining rigidity of capitalist relations. It introduces everywhere the greatest elasticity possible. It renders all capitalist forces extensible, relative and mutually sensitive to the highest degree. Doing this, it facilitates and aggravates crises, which are nothing more or less than the periodic collisions of the contradictory forces of capitalist economy. That leads us to another question. Why does credit generally have the appearance of a means of adaptation of capitalism? No matter what the relation or form in which this adaptation 
is represented by certain people, it can obviously consist only of the power to suppress one of the several antagonistic relations of capitalist economy, that is, of the power to suppress or weaken one of the contradictions, and allow liberty of movement at one point or another to the other fettered productive forces. In fact, it is precisely credit that aggravates these contradictions to the highest degree. It aggravates the antagonism between the mode of production and the mode of exchange by stretching the production to the limit and at the same time paralyzing exchange at the smallest pretext. It aggravates the antagonism between the mode of production and the mode of appropriation by separating production from ownership, that is, by transforming the capital employed in production into social capital, that is at the same time transforming a part of the profit in the form of interest on capital, into a simple title of ownership. It aggravates the antagonism between the property relations, ownership, and the relations of production by putting into a small number of hands immense productive forces and expropriating large numbers of small capitalists. Lastly, it aggravates the antagonism existing between the social character of production and private capitalist ownership by rendering necessary the intervention of the state in production. In short, credit reproduces all the fundamental antagonisms of the capitalist world. It accentuates them, it precipitates their development, and thus pushes the capitalist world forward to its own destruction. The prime act of capitalist adaptation, as far as credit is concerned, should really consist in breaking and suppressing credit. In fact, credit is far from being a means of capitalist adaptation, it is, on the contrary, a means of destruction of the most extreme revolutionary significance. Has not this revolutionary character of credit actually inspired plans of socialist reform? As such, it has had distinguished proponents, some of whom, Isaac Pereria in France, were, as Marx puts it, half-prophets, half-rogues. Just as fragile is the second means of adaptation, employers' organizations. According to Bernstein, such organizations will put an end to anarchy of production and do away with crises through the regulation of production. The multiple repercussions of the development of cartels and trusts has not been considered too carefully up to now, but they predict a problem that can only be solved with the aid of Marxist theory. One thing is certain, we could speak of damming up capitalist anarchy through the agency of capitalist combines, only in the measure that cartels, trusts, etc. become even approximately the dominant form of production. But such a possibility is excluded by the very nature of cartels. The final economic aim and result of combines is the following. Through the suppression of competition in a given branch of production, the distribution of the massive profit realized on the market is influenced in such a manner that there is an increase of the share going to this branch of industry. Such organization of the field can increase the rate of profit in one branch of industry at the expense of another. That is precisely why it cannot be generalized. For, when it is extended to all important branches of industry, this tendency suppresses its own influence. Furthermore, within the limits of their practical application, the results of combines is the very opposite of suppression of industrial anarchy. Cartels ordinarily succeed in obtaining an increase in profit in the home market by producing at a lower rate of profit from the foreign market, thus utilizing the supplementary portions of capital which they cannot utilize for domestic needs. That is to say, they sell abroad cheaper than at home. The result is the sharpening of competition abroad, the very opposite of what certain people want to find. That is well demonstrated by the history of the world sugar industry. Generally speaking, combines treated as a manifestation of the capitalist mode of production can only be considered a definite phase of capitalist development. Cartels are fundamentally nothing else than a means resorted to by the capitalist mode of production for the purpose of holding back the fatal fall of the rate of profit in certain branches of production. What method do cartels employ for this end? That of keeping inactive a part of the accumulated capital. That is, they use the same method in which another form is employed in crises. The remedy and the illness resemble each other like two drops of water. In Indeed, the first can be considered the lesser evil only up to a certain point, when the outlets of disposal begin to shrink and the world market has been extended to its limit and has become exhausted through the competition of the capitalist countries, and sooner or later that is bound to come, then the forced partial idleness of capital will reach such dimensions that the remedy will become transformed into a malady, and capital, already pretty much socialized through regulation, will tend to revert again to the form of individual capital. In the face of the increased difficulties of finding markets, each individual portion of capital will prefer to take its chances alone. At that time, the large, regulating organizations will burst like soap bubbles and give way to aggravated competition. 
In a general way, cartels, just like credit, appear therefore as a determined phase of capitalist development, which, in the last analysis, aggravates the anarchy of the capitalist world and expresses and ripens its internal contradictions. Cartels aggravate the antagonism between the mode of production and exchange by sharpening the struggle between the producer and consumer, as is the case especially in the United States. They aggravate, furthermore, the antagonism existing between the mode of production and the mode of appropriation by opposing, in the most brutal fashion, to the working class the superior force of organized capital, and thus increasing the antagonism between capital and labor. Finally, capitalist combinations aggravate the contradictions existing between the international character of capitalist world economy and the national character of the state. Insofar as they are always accompanied by a general tariff war, which sharpens the differences between the capitalist states, we must add to this the decidedly revolutionary character exercised by cartels on the concentration of production, technical progress, etc. In other words, when evaluated from the angle of their final effect on capitalist economy, cartels and trusts fail as means of adaptation. They fail to attenuate the contradictions of capitalism. On the contrary, they appear to be an instrument of the greater anarchy. They encourage the further development of the internal contradictions of capitalism. They accelerate the coming of a general decline of capitalism. But if the credit system cartels and the rest do not suppress the anarchy of capitalism, why have we not had a major commercial crisis for two decades, since 1873? Is this not a sign that, contrary to Marx's analysis, the capitalist mode of production has adapted itself, at least in a general way, to the needs of society? Hardly had Bernstein rejected, in 1898, Marx's theory of crises when a profound general crisis broke out in 1900, while seven years later, a new crisis beginning in the United States hit the world market. Facts proved the theory of adaptation to be false. They showed at the same time that the people who had abandoned Marx's theory of crisis only because no crisis had occurred within a certain space of time merely confused the essence of this theory with one of its secondary exterior aspects, the 10-year cycle. The description of the cycle of modern capitalist industry as a 10-year period was to Marx and Engels in 1860 and 70 only a simple statement of facts. It is not based on a natural law, but on a series of given historical circumstances. They were connected with the rapidly spreading activity of young capitalism. The crisis of 1825 was, in effect, the result of extensive investment of capital in the construction of roads, canals, gas works, which took place during the preceding decade, particularly in England, where the crisis broke out. The following crisis of 1836-39 was similarly the result of heavy investments in the construction of means of transportation. The crisis of 1847, provoked by the feverish building of railroads in England, from 1844 to 1847, in three years the British Parliament gave railway concessions to the value of $15 billion. In each of these three mentioned cases, a crisis came after new bases for capitalist development were established. In 1857, the same result was brought by an abrupt opening of new markets for European industry in America and Australia. After the discovery of the gold mines, the extensive construction of railway lines, especially in France, where the example of England was then closely imitated. From 1852 to 1856, new railway lines to the value of 1,250 million francs were built in France alone. And finally, we have the Great Crisis of 1873, a direct consequence of the firm boom of large industry in Germany and Austria, which followed the political events of 1866 and 1871. So that up to now, the sudden extension of the domain of capitalist economy, and not its shrinking, was each time the cause of commercial crises. That, the international crises repeated themselves precisely every ten years, was purely an exterior fact, a matter of chance. The Marxist formula for crises as presented by Engels in anti-During, and Marx in the first and third volumes of Capital, applies to all crises only in the measure that it uncovers their international mechanisms and their general basic causes. Crises may repeat themselves every five or ten years, or every eight or twenty years. But what proves best the falseness of Bernstein's theory is that in the countries having the greatest development of the famous means of adaptation, credit, perfected communications, and trusts, that the last crisis, 1907-08, was the most violent. The belief that capitalist production could adapt itself to exchange presupposes one of two things. Either the world market can spread unlimitedly, or, on the contrary, the development of the productive forces is so fettered that it cannot pass beyond the bounds of the market. The first hypothesis constitutes a material impossibility. The second is rendered just as impossible by the constant technical progress that daily creates new productive forces in all branches. There remains still another phenomenon, 
which, says Bernstein, contradicts the course of capitalist development, as it is indicated above, in the steadfast phalanx of middle-sized enterprises, Bernstein sees a sign that the development of large industry does not move in a revolutionary direction, and it is not as effective from the angle of the concentration of industry as was expected by the theory of collapse. He is here, however, the victim of his own lack of understanding. For, to see the progressive disappearances of large industry is to misunderstand, sadly, the nature of the process. According to Marxist theory, small capitalists play in the general course of the capitalist development the role of pioneers of technical change. They possess the role in a double sense. They initiate new methods of production in well-established branches of industry. They are instrumental in the creation of new branches of production not yet exploited by the big capitalist. It is false to imagine that the history of the middle-sized capitalist establishments proceeds rectilinearly in the direction of their progressive disappearance. The course of this development is, on the contrary, purely dialectical and moves constantly among contradictions. The middle capitalist layers find themselves, just like the workers, under the influence of two antagonistic tendencies, one ascendant, the other descendant. In this case, the descendant tendency is the continued rise of the scale of production, which overflows periodically the dimension of the average size parcels of capital and removes them repeatedly from the terrain of world competition. The ascendant tendency is, First, the periodic depreciation of the existing capital, which lowers again, for a certain time, the scale of production in proportion to the, to the value of the necessary minimum amount of capital. It is represented, besides, by the penetration of capitalist production into new spheres. The struggle of the average size enterprise against big capital cannot be considered a regularly preceding battle in which the troops of the weaker party continues to melt away directly and quantitatively. It should be rather regarded as a periodic mowing down of the small enterprises which rapidly grow up again, only to be mowed down once more by large industry. The two tendencies play ball with the middle capitalist layers. The descending tendency must win in the end. The very opposite is true of the development of the working class. The victory of the descending tendency must not necessarily show itself to be an absolute numerical diminution of the middle-size enterprises. It must show itself first in the progressive increase of the minimum amount of capital necessary for the functioning of the enterprise in the old branches of production, second in the constant diminution of the interval of time during which the small capitalists can serve the opportunity to exploit the new branches of production. The result, as far as the small capitalist is concerned, is a progressively shorter duration of his stay in the new industry and a progressively more rapid change in the methods of production as a field for investment. For the average capitalist strata, taken as a whole, there is a process of more and more rapid social assimilation and dissimilation. Bernstein himself knows this perfectly well. He himself comments on this, but what he seems to forget is that this very thing is the law of the movement of the average capitalist enterprise. If one admits that small capitalists are pioneers of technical progress, and if it is true that the latter is the vital pulse of capitalist economy, then it manifests that small capitalists are an integral part of capitalist development, which can only disappear together with it, capitalist development, the progressive disappearance of middle-sized enterprise, in the absolute sense considered by Bernstein, means not, as he thinks, the revolutionary course of capitalist development, but precisely the contrary, the cessation, the slowing up of the development. The rate of profit, that is to say, the relative increase of capital, said Marx, is important first of all for the investors of capital, grouping themselves independently, but as soon as the formulation of capital falls exclusively into a handful of big capitalists, the revivifying fire of production is extinguished. It dies away. This episode is brought to you by Carl's. Tufts of knotted hair coming out of your chin? Wild and unruly beard hairs escape from your cheeks? Can't keep your mustache under control? Good! Carl realized that long ago shaving was a sucker's game. Razors are a capitalist scam created as a personal grooming tax by the bourgeoisie. He realized we needed something different. So he grifted a factory off his buddy Freddy, and together they produce... Nothing! There's nothing to buy, and if you don't like it, there's nothing to return either. Just go to carls.com forward slash coupon code mustache420 for 10% off nothing. Just let that rat's nest grow everywhere. And tell him Vinny sent you. Chapter 3 the realization of socialism through social reforms. Bernstein rejects the theory of collapse as an historic road to socialism. Now, what is the way to a socialist society that is proposed by his theory of adaptation to capitalism? Bernstein answers this question only by illusion. Conrad Schmidt, however, attempts to deal with this detail in the manner of Bernstein. According to him, 
the trade union struggle for hours and wages and the political struggle for reforms will lead to a progressively more extensive control over the conditions of production. And, as the rights of the capitalist proprietor will be diminished through legislation, he will be reduced in time to the role of a simple administrator. The capitalist will see his property lose more and more value to himself, till finally the direction and administration of exploitation will be taken from him entirely, and collective exploitation instituted. Therefore trade unions, social reforms, and, as Bernstein, the political democratization of the state are the means of a progressive realization of socialism. But the fact that the principal function of trade unions, and this was best explained by Bernstein himself in The New Times in 1891, consists in providing the workers with a means of realizing the capitalist law of wages, that is to say, the sale of their labor power at the current market prices. Trade unions enable the proletariat to utilize, at each instant, the conjunction of the market, but these conjunctions, one, the labor demand determined by the state of production, two, the labor supply created by the proletarianization of the middle strata of society, and the natural reproduction of the working classes, and three, the momentary degree of productivity of labor, these remain outside the sphere of influence of the trade unions. Trade unions cannot suppress the law of wages. Under the most favorable circumstances, the best they can do is to impose on capitalist exploitation the normal limit of the moment. They have not, however, the power to suppress exploitation itself, not even gradually. Schmidt, if this is true, sees the present trade union movement in a feeble initial stage. He argues that, in the future, the trade union movement will exercise a progressively increased influence over the regulation of production. But by this regulation of production, we can only understand two things, intervention in the technical domain of the process of production and fixing the scale of production itself. What is the nature of the influence exercised by trade unions in these two departments? It is clear that the technique of production, the interest of the capitalist agrees, up to a certain point with the progress and development of the capitalist economy. It is his own interest that pushes him to make technical improvements, but the isolated worker finds himself in a decidedly different position. Each technical transformation contradicts his interests. It aggravates his helpless situation by depreciating the value of his labor power and by rendering his work more intense, more monotonous, and more difficult. Insofar as trade unions can intervene in the technical development of production, they can only oppose technical innovation. But here they do not act in the interest of the entire working class and its emancipation, which accords rather with technical progress, therefore, and the interest of the isolated capitalist. They act here in a reactionary direction. And in fact, we find efforts on the part of the workers to intervene in the technical part of production, not in the future where Schmidt looks for, but in the past of the trade union movement. Such efforts characterize the old phase of English trade unionism up to 1860, when the British organizations were still tied to medieval corporative vestiges, found inspiration in the outworn principle of a fair day's wage for a fair day's labor, as expressed by Webb in The History of Trade Unionism, on the other hand, the effort of the labor unions to fix the scale of production and the prices of commodities is a recent phenomenon. Only recently have we witnessed such attempts, and again in England, in the nature and tendencies of these efforts resemble those dealt with above. What does the active participation of the trade unions in fixing the scale and cost of production amount to? It amounts to a cartel of workers and entrepreneurs in a common stand against the consumer and especially rival entrepreneurs. In no way is the effect of this any different from that of the ordinary employers' associations. Basically, we no longer have a struggle between capital and labor, but the solidarity of capital and labor against the total consumers. Considered for its social worth, it is seen to be a reactionary move that cannot be a stage in the struggle of the emancipation of the proletariat because it connotes the very opposite of the class struggle. Considered from an angle of practical application, it is found to be a utopia which, as shown by a rapid examination, cannot be extended to the large branches of industry producing for the world market. So the scope of trade unions is limited essentially to a struggle for an increase of wages and the reduction of labor time. That is to say, to efforts at regulating capitalist exploitation as they were made necessary by the momentary situation of the world market. But labor unions can in no way influence the process of production itself. Moreover, trade union development moves, contrary to what is asserted by Conrad Schmidt, in the direction of a complete detachment of the labor market from any immediate relation to the rest of the market. It is shown by the facts that even attempts to relate labor contracts to the general situation of production by means of the system of sliding wage scales have been outmoded with historical development. The British labor unions are moving further and further away from such efforts. Even within the effective boundaries of its activities, the trade union movement cannot spread in the unlimited way claimed for it by the theory of adaptation. On the contrary, if we examine the large factors of social development, 
we see that we are not moving toward an epoch marked by victorious development of trade unions, but rather toward a time when hardships of labor unions will increase. Once industrial development has attained its highest possible pint and capitalism has entered its descending phase on the world market, the trade union struggle will become doubly difficult. In the first place, the objective conjunction of the market will be less favorable to the sellers of labor power because the demand for labor power will increase at a slower rate and labor supply more rapidly than at present. In the second place, the capitalists themselves, in order to make up for losses suffered on the world market, will make even greater efforts than at present to reduce the part of the total product going to the workers in the form of wages. The reduction of wages is, as pointed out by Marx, one of the principal means of retarding the fall of profit. The situation in England already offers us a picture of the beginning of the second stage of trade union development. Trade union action is reduced of necessity to the simple defense of already realized gains, and even that is becoming more and more difficult. Such is the general trend of things in our society. The counterpart of this tendency should be the development of the political side of class struggle. Conrad Schmidt commits the same error of historical perspective when he deals with social reforms. He expects that social reforms, like trade union organizations, will dictate to the capitalists the only conditions under which they will be able to employ labor power. Seeing reform in this light, Bernstein calls labor legislation a piece of social control and, as such, a piece of socialism. Similarly, Conrad Schmidt always uses the term social control when he refers to labor protection laws. Once he has thus happily transformed the state into society, he confidently adds, that is to say, the rising working class. As a result of this trick of substitution, the innocent labor laws enacted by the German Federal Council are transformed into transitory socialist measures supposedly enacted by the German proletariat. The mystification is obvious. We know that the present state is not society representing the rising working class. It is itself the representation of capitalist society. It is a class state. Therefore, its reform measures are not an application of social control, that is, the control of society working freely in its own labor process. They are forms of control applied to the class organization of capital to the production of capital. The so-called social reforms are enacted in the interests of capital. Yes, Bernstein and Conrad Schmidt see at present only feeble beginnings of this control. They hope to see a long succession of reforms in the future, all favoring the working class, but here they commit a mistake similar to their belief in the unlimited development of the trade union movement. A basic condition for the theory of gradual realization of socialism through social reform is a certain objective development of capitalist property and of the state. Conrad Schmidt says that the capitalist proprietor tends to lose his special rights with historic development and is reduced to the role of a simple administrator. He thinks that the expropriation of the means of production cannot possibly be affected by a single historic act. He therefore resorts to the theory of expropriation by stages. With this in mind, he divides the right to property into one, the rights of sovereignty ownership, which he attributes to a thing called society, and which he wants to extend, and two, its opposite, the simple right of use held by the capitalist, but which is supposedly being reduced in the hands of the capitalists to mere administration of their enterprises. This interpretation is either a simple play on words, and in that case, the theory of the gradual expropriation has no real basis, or it is a true picture of judicial development, in which case we shall see the theory of gradual expropriation is entirely false. The division of the right of property into several component rights, an arrangement serving Conrad Schmidt as a shelter, wherein he may construct his theory of expropriation by stages, characterized feudal society founded on natural economy. In feudalism, the total product was shared among the social classes of the time on the basis of the personal relations existing between the feudal lord and his serfs or tenants. The decomposition of property into several partial rights reflected the manner of distribution of the social wealth of that period. With the passage to the production of commodities and the dissolution of all personal bonds among the participants in the process of production, the relation between man and things, that is to say, private property, became reciprocally stronger. Since the division is no longer made on the basis of personal relations but through exchange, the different rights to a share in the social wealth are no longer measured as fragments of property rights having a common interest. They are measured according to the values brought by each on the market. The first change introduced into judicial relations with the advance of commodity production in the medieval city communes was the development of absolute private property. The latter appeared in the very midst of the feudal juridical relations. This development has progressed at a rapid pace in capitalist production. The more the process of production is socialized, the more the process of distribution, 
division of wealth rests on exchange, and the more private property becomes inviolable and closed, the more capitalist property becomes transformed from the right to the product of one's own labor to the simple right to appropriate somebody else's labor, as long as the capitalist himself manages his own factory, distribution is still up to a certain point tied to his personal participation in the process of production, but as the personal management on the part of the capitalist becomes superfluous, which is the case in the shareholding societies today, the property of capital, so far as its right to share in the distribution division of wealth is concerned, becomes separated from any personal relation in production. It now appears in its purest form. The capitalist right to property reaches its most complete development in capital held in the shape of shares and industrial credit. So, that Conrad Schmidt's historic schema, tracing the transformation of the capitalist from a proprietor to a simple administrator, belies the real historic development. In historic reality, on the contrary, the capitalist tends to change from the proprietor and administrator to a simple proprietor. What happens here to Conrad Schmidt happened to Goethe. What is, he sees as in a dream. What he no longer is, becomes for him reality. Just as Schmidt's historic schema travels economically backwards from the modern shareholding society to an artisan's shop, so juridically he wishes to lead back the capitalist world into the old feudal shell of the Middle Ages. Also, from this point of view, social control appears in reality under a different aspect as seen by Conrad Schmidt. What functions today as social control, labor legislation, the control of industrial organizations through shareholding, etc., has absolutely nothing to do with his supreme ownership. Far from being, as Schmidt believes, a reduction of capitalist ownership, his social control is, on the contrary, a protection of such ownership. Or, expressed from the economic viewpoint, it is not a threat to capitalist exploitation, but simply the regulation of exploitation. When Bernstein asks if there is more or less of socialism in a labor protection law, we can assure him that in the best of labor protective laws, there is no more socialism than in a municipal ordinance regulating the cleaning of streets or the lighting of street lamps. Chapter 4. Capitalism and the State The second condition of the gradual realization of socialism is, according to Bernstein, the evolution of the state in society. It has become commonplace to say that the present state is a class state. This too, like referring to capitalist society, should not be understood in a rigorous absolute manner, but dialectically. The state became capitalist with the political victory of the bourgeoisie. Capitalist development modifies essentially the nature of the state, widening its sphere of action, constantly imposing on it new functions, especially those affecting economic life, making more and more necessary its interventions and control in society. In this sense, capitalist development prepares little by little the future fusion of the state to society. It prepares, so to say, the return of the function of the state to society. Following this line of thought, one can speak of an evolution of the capitalist state into society, and it is undoubtedly what Marx had in mind when he referred to labor legislation as the final conscious intervention of society in the vital social process, a phrase upon which Bernstein leans heavily. But, on the other hand, the same capitalist development realizes another transformation in the nature of the state. The present state is, first of all, an organization of the ruling class. It assumes functions favoring social development specifically because, and in the measure that, these interests and social developments coincide, in a general fashion, with the interests of the dominant class. Labor legislation is enacted as much in the immediate interest of the capitalist class as it is in the interest of society in general. But this harmony endures only to a certain point of capitalist development. When capitalist development has reached a certain level, the interests of the bourgeoisie, as a class, and the needs of economic progress begin to clash, even in the capitalist sense. We believe that this phase has already begun. It shows itself in two extremely important phenomena of contemporary social life. On the one hand, the policy of tariff barriers, and on the other, militarism. These two phenomena have played an indispensable, and in that sense a progressive and revolutionary role, in the history of capitalism. Without tariff protection, the development of large industry would have been impossible in several countries. But now, that situation is different. At present, protection does not serve so much as develop young industry as to maintain artificially certain aged forms of production. From the angle of capitalist development, that is, from the point of view of the world economy, 
It matters little whether Germany exports more merchandise into England or England exports more merchandise into Germany. From the viewpoint of this development, it may be said that the Blackamoor has done his work and it is time for him to go his way. Given the condition of reciprocal dependence, in which the various branches of industry find themselves, a protectionist tariff on any commodity necessarily results in raising the cost of production of other commodities inside the country. It therefore impedes industrial development. But this is not from the viewpoint of the interests of the capitalist class. While industry does not need tariff barriers for its development, the entrepreneurs need tariffs to protect their markets. This signifies that, at present, tariffs no longer serve as a means of protecting a developing capitalist section against a more advanced section, they are now the arm used by one national group of capitalists against another group. Furthermore, tariffs are no longer necessary as an instrument of protection for industry in its movement to create and conquer the home market. They are now indispensable means of the cartelization of industry. That is, means used in the struggle of capitalist producers against the consuming society in the aggregate. What brings out in an emphatic manner the specific character of contemporary customs policies is the fact that today, not industry, but agriculture plays the predominant role in the making of tariffs. The policy of customs protection has become a tool for converting and expressing the feudal interests in capitalist form. The same change has taken place in militarism. If we consider history as well, not as it could have been or should have been, we must agree that war has been an indispensable feature of capitalist development. The United States, Germany, Italy, the Balkan states, Poland, all owe the condition or the rise of their capitalist development to wars, whether resulting in victory or defeat. As long as they were countries marked by internal political division or economic isolation, which had to be destroyed, militarism played a revolutionary role. Considered from the viewpoint of capitalism, but at present the situation is different, if world politics have become the stage of menacing conflicts, it is not so much a question of the opening of new countries to capitalism, it is a question of already existing European antagonisms, which, transported into other lands, have exploded there. The armed opponents we see today in Europe, and on other continents, do not range themselves as capitalist countries on one side and backwards countries on the other. They are states pushed into war, especially as a result of their similarly advanced capitalist development. In view of this, an explosion is certain to be fatal to this development, in the sense that it must provoke an extremely profound disturbance and transformation of economic life in all countries. However, the matter appears entirely different when considered from the standpoint of the capitalist class. For the latter, militarism has become indispensable, first as a means of struggle for the defense of national interests, in competition against other national interests, second as a method of placement for financial and industrial capital, third as an instrument of class domination over the laboring population inside the country. In themselves, these interests have nothing in common with the development of the capitalist mode of production. What demonstrates best the specific character of present-day militarism is the fact that it develops generally in all countries as an effect, so to speak, of its own internal mechanical motive power, a phenomenon that was completely unknown several decades ago. We recognize this in the fatal character of the impending explosion, which is inevitable in spite of the complete impending explosion, which is inevitable in spite of the complete indecisiveness of the objectives and the motives of the conflict. From a motor of capitalist development, militarism has changed into capitalist malady. Editor's note, this was written well before World War I. In the clash between capitalist development in the interest of the dominant class, the state takes a position alongside the latter. Its policy, like that of the bourgeoisie, comes into conflict with social development. It thus loses more and more of its character as a representative of the whole society and is transformed, at the same rate, into a pure class state. Or, to speak more exactly, these two qualities distinguish themselves more from each other and find themselves in a contradictory relationship with the very nature of the state. The contradiction becomes progressively sharper, for on one hand, we have the growth of the function of a general interest on the part of the state, its intervention in social life, its control over society, but on the other hand, its class character obliges the state to move the pivot of its activity as its means of coercion more and more into domains which are useful only to the class character of the bourgeoisie and have for society as a whole only a negative importance as in the case of militarism and tariff and colonial policies. Moreover, the social control exercised by this state is at the same time penetrated with and dominated by its class character. See how labor legislation is applied in all countries. The extension of democracy, which Bernstein sees as a means of realizing socialism by degrees, does not contradict, but on the contrary, corresponds 
perfectly to the transformation realized in the nature of the state. Conrad Schmidt declares that the conquest of a social democratic majority in parliament leads directly to the gradual socialization of society. Now, the democratic forms of political life are without a question a phenomenon expressing clearly the evolution of the state and society. They constitute, to that extent, a move toward a socialist transformation, but the conflict within the capitalist state described above manifests itself even more emphatically in modern parliamentarianism. Indeed, in accordance with its form, parliamentarianism serves to express, within the organization of the state, the interests of the whole society, but what parliamentarianism expresses here in capitalist society, that is to say, a society in which the capitalist interests predominate, in this society the representative institutions, democratic in forms, are in content instruments of the interests of the ruling class. This manifests itself in a tangible fashion, in the fact that as soon as democracy shows the tendency to negate its class character and become transformed into an instrument of the real interests of the population, the democratic forms are sacrificed by the bourgeoisie and by its state representatives. That is why the idea of the conquest of a parliamentary reformist majority is a calculation which, entirely in the spirit of bourgeois liberalism, preoccupies itself with one side, the formal side of democracy, but does not take into account the other side, its real content. All in all, parliamentarianism is not a directly socialist element impregnating gradually the whole capitalist society. It is, on the contrary, a specific form of the bourgeois class state helping to ripen and develop the existing antagonisms of capitalism. In the light of the history of the objective development of the state, Bernstein's and Conrad Schmidt's belief that increased social control results in the direct introduction of socialism is transformed into a formula that finds itself from day to day in greater contradiction with reality. The theory of the gradual introduction of socialism proposes progressive reform of capitalist property and the capitalist state in the direction of socialism. But, in consequence of the objective laws of existing society, one and the other develop in precisely opposite direction. The process of production is increasingly socialized. In state intervention, the control of the state over the process of production is extended. But, at the same time, private property becomes more and more the form of open capitalist exploitation of the labor of others, and state control is penetrated with the exclusive interests of the ruling class. The state, that is to say the political organization of capitalism, and the property relations, that is to say the juridical organization of capitalism, becomes more capitalist, and not more socialist. Opposing to the theory of progressive introduction of socialism, two insurmountable difficulties. Fourier's scheme of changing by means of a system of phalanxteries, the water of all season to tasty lemonade, was surely a fantastic idea, but Bernstein, proposing to change the sea of capitalist bitterness into a sea of socialist sweetness by progressively pouring into it bottles of social reformist lemonade, presents an idea that is merely more insipid but no more fantastic. The production relations of capitalist society approach more and more the production relations of socialist society. But, on the other hand, its political and juridical relations establish between capitalist society and socialist society a steadily rising wall. The wall is not overthrown, but is on the contrary strengthened and consolidated by the development of social reforms in the course of democracy. Only the hammer blow of revolution, that is to say, the conquest of political power by the proletariat, can break down the wall. That was the first part of Social Reform or Revolution. The text for this episode was provided by the Marxist Internet Archive at Marxists.org. They have a huge collection of Marxist writers from well-known to obscure. And they are one of the most useful websites for a Marxist's political development. Next up, a specter is still haunting Edward Bernstein. Social Reform or Revolution Part 2.